Janet Burroway is the author of plays, poetry, essays, children's books, and nine novels including The Buzzards, Raw Silk, Opening Nights, Cutting Stone, all notable books of the New York Times Book Review, Bridge of Sand, and Simone in Transit. Plays include parts of Speech, Sweepstakes, Boomerang, and Medea with Child which have received readings and productions in Chicago, New York, London, San Francisco, Hollywood, and various regional theaters. Her writing fiction, now in its 10th edition, is the most widely used creative writing text in America, and imaginative writing is in its fourth edition. She is author of a collection of essays, Embalming Mom, and the memoir, Losing Tim winner of a Lifetime Achievement Award in writing from the Florida Humanities Council. She is a Robert O. Lawton Distinguished Professor Emerita at Florida State University. Janet Burroway, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you, Mia. You're well known as a writer and also a writer about the craft of fiction. And I believe that we have an exclusive front row seat to a novel you've just completed and you're going to share with us. So just tell us a little bit about Simone in Transit. This is a story that runs from a woman's 10th year to her 70th. And it begins with her rescue from Belgium in 1942. And the passage I'm going to read is that beginning. The conceit of this novel is that it tells Simone's story from many, many different points of view. And it deals with what a self is, including how much of a self is made up of what other people think of us. So this first passage is in the voice of a middle-aged, working-class British woman, and I will not attempt the accent. Transit, Ostend, Dover, 1941. Four times that summer, we brought back boatloads of the refugees. The vicar organized us. They didn't mind I was a woman because I was able-bodied. We traveled down from Teddington once a month to make the crossing, and we had the use of Duck Henley's trawler and half a dozen meeting points along the Flemish coast. Underground runners all through Belgium setting up the rendezvous. It's a wonder what you remember. Great swollen blanks and then some daft thing bobs up like flotsam. Such as, I'd never worn a pair of trousers. And what I couldn't get used to was the twill going swish between my thighs. Is that camera running? Don't show me saying thighs, will you? Anyway, that and the smells. Tar, old fish in the wet boards. Seasick, of course and off your own skin, a bit of metal smell with a sourness like fireworks. When they say sweating bullets, I expect that's what they mean. More than once I've been told it didn't happen. You must have got it muddled, people say. Not that late in the war, not with all the channel patrols and mines, nobody would have risked it. They reckon without a hotspur like our vicar and the grit of those resistance and our ignorance, I suppose. That must be 20 years ago. Oh, well, that's what you're up to, isn't it? 25 years, and high time you do the women, if you don't mind my saying. But you know, women of World War II, it's not how I fancy myself from one day to the next. Borrow postal clerk, now grandmother, Church of England, dab hand with the Yorkshire pudding for someone reared in Clapham Common, widow, 25 years. Well, the ones we ferried came in every sort. I never saw one of them again. You probably think I misremember it from a newsreel. Not that we ever made it into the Pathé News. But I said it at the time, every one of them gray and eyes like drain holes that the color washed right down. It's the children stick in your mind. A wee tiddler with its eyes wide open and its mouth tight shut. I remember one boy landed crooked off the dock and broke his shin, so the bone stub rolled under the skin like a tongue in a cheek. Somebody gave him a mouthful of sleeve to keep him quiet. It was that same trip we were expecting a father and daughter that didn't show up, and we about pushed off without them. We'd heard dogs. 
and you never knew the meaning of dogs. It could be the patrols or just somebody's mutt in a Ferrari. One thing I've never understood, you pick a night with no moon and a piece of shore without a light, a disused lighthouse this was, great dark lump in the dark, and you cannot see a whit, cannot see. And then there's a click like in the back of your eyes, and you can. Sandiford was pressing off the piling and the vicar said, no, steady on. Duck was reluctant. You couldn't know when the boy would yell out. And then he felt it too and had them put up the oars. The waves were thick as treacle in the black shore. And now click, there's this girl, maybe 10 or 12. Gawky little tyke, slogging straight into the water up to her coat hem. Sandiford swung his arm, signaling her to go round the dock and fetched her down with her shoes full of water. She'd got one hand done up in a fist against her collarbone. Skinny as a rail she was, and those scupper eyes. And her coat too small, though it was posh, velvet collar in that. I wrapped her up and she says, po-faced, my father arrives not. She says, my father. I knew better than to ask. From there across, you understand nobody said U-boats. Nobody said mines. Mostly you didn't keep an eye out except for Duck and Sandiford, whose job it was. Because you were superstitious, you would call them up. All the same, that's what was in everybody's mind. You just hoped the kiddies didn't know the odds. Well, of course I was frightened. Spitless, we used to say. But you want me to show you frightened in the telling now, and I'm not, you see. You can't be afraid of the past, can you? That's over and done. What I remember is we had a little paraffin stove and usually when you got far out enough to rope the motors into life, they were glad to settle down over a cuppa. But this skinny one didn't leave the stern. Maybe eight hours of rough crossing, looking back where we'd come from in the dark. She held that one hand tight as lockjaw. And I thought she had some money in there, maybe, or a bit of jewelry, something she'd been told to keep from harm. You'd think you wouldn't be curious under the circumstances, but eight hours is a long time to be standing. Your mind must be doing something. I remember I tucked the blanket tighter around her and held it there, which she let me. And for most of the way, we just stood till it was lightening a little down by the horizon. She dozed, I thought. She sagged against me and bit by bit, her hand relaxed over the top of the blanket. There was nothing in it, not a thing. I cupped it in my own and chafed it back to life a little. There must have been a thousand like her, cut off and set out some other direction altogether. But she's the one I do think about from time to time. I wondered, all that long way across, how she would think of it, looking back, the wet and the dark water, and maybe this woman that held her bundled against the wind. I suppose I hoped she'd remember me kindly now and then, and I thought how we must have looked to God, that greasy little trawler in the black wake, like a clot being washed from a wound. What an image to round it on. And I think it calls up so many, the details are excellent. You really get this in transit indeed. It's full of all those little details that filter in so suddenly, but they come back and stick it on your memory. And as I listen to it, because I know that you're also a traveler and you've made your home in many places and you can hear it a bit in your accent as well. Um, <laughs> So I can very much associate with this character, I guess, who is Simone, the ideas of, you know, where is home and where do I belong and who am I? And the accidents of birth, you know, sometimes a life can turn on an accident. And I think it brings us back to what we really appreciate and what's so wonderful about fiction as well is that you can become other people. Yes, there's a lot of controversy about that idea at the moment about whether fiction is truly empathic and how much freedom the imagination should have. Because as one of my friends says, the imagination is not free. It comes from all of the places that we come from. So it's a controversial notion. 
but I am firmly on the side of literature is empathic. In fact, I think all the arts are empathic because all the arts basically say, wait a minute, look at it this way. And they allow us to see from some other vantage point than our extremely self-interested selves. Without a doubt, I think it's empathic. And maybe it would just lead you to exaggerate. It could lessen certain tendencies we might have if they're selfish, but maybe make us question them. Or it could exaggerate certain tendencies. You know, it depends because we do tend to read the things that we're drawn to and we're like. But I do love that quality that at least for a brief moment, we can escape what is pretty much constant consciousness and enter another's, I don't know that it makes us more altruistic. Maybe that's a question. (laughs) There has been research done on this that showed that after students had read a literary passage of fiction, that they took a test that showed them being more generous to other people, more empathic. So I I need to believe that it's true. (laughs) I do believe it's true. I think so. I think more so than other art forms, let's say, see, I'm a painter, but my first love is writing. So I I do try to write, but you know, there are other art forms like painting or dance or, you know, that would have a physical empathy or something, but it doesn't articulate the point of view, the consciousness, maybe the whole person, you know, so these mute art forms, let's say, or almost mute accompanied by music or something like that. So I think that novels, even contrasting that with poetry, playwriting, that's very whole person but it gets us into the mind and the desires because it's not even what's acted yeah I agree well you would know more about it than me because you're also a playwright (laughs) as you said and listeners to this podcast may have read your textbook on the craft of writing which is I think the most taught or one of the most taught now in American universities It is the most taught still, I believe. That was also born of your years of experience as a teacher. And then I guess you wanted to sit down. What took you quite a while to learn, which is how to teach writing. So how did you come to set down those principles? Well, you're right that coming to learn how to teach it is a long and difficult process. When I came back from England to America and came to Florida State University, one of the first things I was asked to do was a course called Narrative Techniques. And I had been in workshops. I knew how to lead a workshop. But this was meant to be an instructional course that would tell the students how to do it. And I had no idea how to teach that. So I fumbled around, starting with Aeschylus, I'm ashamed to say. (laughs) And after a few years, I found that if the things we look for in literature were put there by the author, then we could talk about how to put them there. So motivation and character and setting and plot and all of these things can have their own vocabulary. Now, I think this reads, at least in America, quite obvious, and some writers think too obvious. But at that point, there was no such framework with which to teach. After a few years, my editor at Little Brown, who published my novels at that point, had a friend in the textbook division who was coming to Tallahassee to sell textbooks, and he told his friend to take me out to lunch. So when we were out to lunch, I described this problem that I had had and how I thought I'd figured out how to teach it. And I said, do you think there's any market for a textbook now that there are so many courses in creative writing? And he said, I have no idea. What do you think? I said, I have no idea. What do you think? And so we decided to try it. I sat down the next year and wrote the first edition of this book. And it's hard to believe now that there was no such thing. There was not any textbook for creative writing courses or a fiction writing course. I think there was one that covered all the genres, but there was none for fiction. And so after a few years, it caught on and began to sell very well. And now it's in its 10th edition from University of Chicago Press, who have been a wonderful publishing industry for me. Yes. And I think that particularly younger writers, I mean, I think it's kind of like the scaffolding, right? It's very good to have, it's just like musical training or painters or dancers. You need to have that. In other disciplines, they have it from the start, but writing. I take it for granted that you need it. 
Yes, exactly. And obviously, with a novelist such as yourself, is this your ninth novel now? So you don't need it as much. You've internalized it, right? Yes, that's true. It's not true that I don't need the techniques I talk about. I press myself in those. This book is in so many points of view that I have to think about point of view and how it operates. But yes, it's mostly internalized. Exactly. But it's like scales or anything to make sure you have those muscles. Because I think maybe also novelists sort of have, everyone has their own voice, but then they would have these secrets. And so I would enter interviews with musicians or singers and they would say, well, we only tell our secrets to so many. So it's very generous of you also to put those down to help those who are still uncertain. They have something to say, but you're helping them. It's a great assistance. It's very gratifying to think that it really has helped. And I still get letters from people who say that it has been crucial to them to understand the techniques. It's very much a technique-oriented book. It's not about your soul, you know. (laughs) But I found at one point in the seventh grade in Emerson Grammar School in Phoenix, Arizona, my English teacher, Mr. Allsworth, found that I was writing poetry. He looked at my poetry, which was very rudimentary, but I was trying. I was 11. And he kept me after school Thursday afternoons for an hour for the whole semester to teach me the poetic feat. And he essentially taught me prosody, which nobody else ever offered to teach me all the way through high school and university and graduate school. And he taught me so well when I was that young that I could lecture on prosody at Sussex University when I was 30. I felt very confident and even sometimes powerful to have this knowledge when I wanted to write a poem. And so I think that led me to believe that if I could teach techniques to students, it would be a powerful tool for them. Well, absolutely, because a lot of times they're very talented writers who have maybe strong life experiences or they've kind of instinctively come to learn some things, but when they don't know the whole palette that's out there, then they'll just grab and sometimes it works. But if you don't know what palette, what meters and what structures are out there, you know, it's interesting because I was interviewing recently the poet David Tomas Martinez, and he's inspired by hip hop and popular culture. And he'd been in a gang when he was young, but he still learned iambic pentameter so he could draw from its strength. And then when he didn't need that scaffolding, play off of it. It's very interesting you you mentioned that because when hip hop first came out, I was very scathing about it. They don't know how to write a verse. They don't know how to do a rhyme. And then I realized that there is an entirely different set of rules. There's a whole scaffolding that hip hop is based on. And the use of alliteration and internal rhyme and assonance is quite brilliant in some of those songs. It's interesting contrast. Now, I wouldn't ascribe or be a fan of, I mean, there's a lot of, not that I'm against profanity, if it's beautiful, but I don't like, you know, sexist profanity. Yeah, yeah, nor do I. (laughs) You know, aggressive, you know, for the sake of it. But it's an interesting combination of high and low culture, because if something becomes too historic, our ears, our eyes can't relate to it. I don't know if you saw that television show, Deadwood, created by David Milch. Yes, the Shakespearean speeches in Deadwood. Exactly. And contrasted with profan, but exuberant profanity. But they need it because if it was all poetry and this, it wouldn't be authentic feeling and it wouldn't go down. So the profanity became a pill, helped the poetry go down. Anyway, it's very interesting how we are all indebted to the writers or artists that came before. You have helped younger writers with your own novels, your own writing and your textbooks. But who were some of those writers for you that you learned besides the professor you just mentioned? There were many. There were many. There was, again, in Phoenix, a teacher in my senior class, who in a period in which the word communism was like saying devil in America, it was just so horrible, stopped the class and said, you have to look at things critically. You have to look at what you hear very carefully. And then he told us the fundamental 
anti-Soviet as it was then notion of from what you can afford to those who need it. I've forgotten the formulation of that for the moment, but it was a kind of revelation to me about how you must examine what you hear and bring a critical attitude toward it to see whether you're being told the truth or not. Something we need in America, and I guess in France as well these days. So that was one thing. Do you mean the teachers or do you also mean the authors that taught me? I think both. I think that both are valuable in terms of lessons. You know, I had a very British education. I went to Barnard, and there was a, a sort of great books education. And then I went to Cambridge. And so I sort of cut my teeth on Henry James and Jane Austen and George Eliot, Joseph Conrad. And I think that those classical old British authors sort of distorted my prose for a long time. I think there was too much Henry James in me for a long time. But I also think that those fundamentals were very important to me and have in some ways good and bad probably persisted in my fiction. Right, yeah. I mean, the canons are different in terms of the great books. I'm not even sure the extent to which they are taught. I was still teaching when the revolution of postmodernism occurred, and it changed the English department enormously without, to my mind, really giving anybody a better education than they were getting from the great books. So I think in some ways, postmodernism is dead. You were talking about your learning experiences and the teachers that you learned from growing up and how they shaped sort of how you view writing, but also just life in general. And I was wondering if you could talk about one piece of advice that you wish you could have known when you were starting out as a writer. There are a number of things, but I think what immediately comes to mind is that I wish I had had Mary Lee Settle's advice on research when I started. I ran into it, luckily, when I was writing my first historical novel. And she said, immerse yourself in the writing of the period, the letters, the journals, the newspapers that were coming out then. Don't read about the period, read in it. And don't take notes. That was the most important piece of, of advice because I had been a terrible note taker. I was taught that's the way to do a research paper. And so I had three by five cards falling off the desk when I was writing a novel, you know, <laughs> and it was wonderful advice. She said, if you truly immerse yourself, what you need will be there when you come to it. And if it doesn't, it probably isn't needed. And that was important advice because the trouble is that if you've got all this research written down and you feel you have to get it in, your fiction reads like a piece of nonfiction. She had a third piece of advice. The third piece was don't read past the period where your novel ends, because if you do, your characters will know what the future is. So Mary Lee Settle was another great teacher for me. Oh, I agree with that so much because I've read, that's why I only like to read very good historical fiction. And I think that that's also the reason why, though the popular opinion of it has now, I mean, there've been just great writers. I wouldn't even call them historical fiction writers. They're just great writers who happen to write in different time periods right. because some historical novels, they're a piece of history that happen to have a story grafted onto it. And you lose interest <laughs> when you're being lectured to. And also, like anyone immersed in the period, like, for instance, if it's a first person account, particularly, you know, when you're telling your friend or your family or something that happened to you, you don't tell them as though you're an anthropologist. You don't tell them what they already know. Exactly. This is not archaeology. It's a life. It's lives. So I think that's really excellent advice. And it makes your historical fiction vivid. And I'm so happy that we have this whole generation of historical fiction authors who are just bringing history to life, which is yes. so hard. Yes. And in the overdue attempt in America to bring diversity to publishing, we are learning so much about African life and the lives of American Black people and BIPOC. And that's a revelation. And I think also empathic, you know, that's important to do. 
Well, that's what's so interesting, because sometimes you can be reading a story and some writers have played around with that too, where you don't even know what is the ethnicity of the character until the very Uh end, or you're not even told, you just might have to guess, or the sex, you know, it's left open to interpretation. And that's interesting to think about, you know, what is our identity? It's so fluid. And you spoke about the power of literature and the imagination to also instill more empathy in people. Do you feel that that has increased in the conversation with the inclusion of more diverse voices being represented in literature, especially? It has broadened because there are more ethnicities that we are identifying with when we read good fiction. So it has broadened. I don't know that it's deepened. And there are also shorter term historical phenomena, such as that the great Indian novels, East Indian novels, are mostly about immigration. And I think that has struck a very strong chord because all of us in some way feel like exiles. I remember many years ago, there was an AWP conference, the Associated Writing Programs Conference, and there was a panel on immigration, or I guess on exile. And the place was packed. I mean, everybody came to hear this panel discussion. And the panelists were all exiles from some war-torn or politically chaotic country. And they talked about their experience, which was all very interesting, but I felt a kind of restiveness in the crowd. And at one point I said, you know, I think that we are uneasy here because all writers feel like exiles. And we are trying to identify what it is in us that feels somehow left out. My name is Jackie Lamb, and I am an associate environmental podcast producer and interviewer at The Creative Process. I am also a rising senior at American University studying film and media arts. I could really relate to Janet's statement of how reading literature serves to make one more empathic. And it made me think of my experience reading The Secret Garden for the first time. The novel tells the story of a young girl named Mary Lennox, who the author Frances Hodgson Burnett describes as being as tyrannical and selfish a little pig as ever lived. While the readers are inclined to immediately dislike the character of Mary Lennox, it is soon revealed that she deserves more empathy, as she is the product of her own circumstances. Ignored by her mother, who is disappointed in her daughter's ugliness and sickliness, Mary is left in the care of servants at a very young age. Surrounded by people who don't care about her but are forced to obey her every demand, Mary grows to be spiteful and rude as a result of her mother's neglect. Once Mary moves in with her cousin, she gradually becomes less tyrannical as she is no longer subject to extreme neglect but rather an environment filled with people who care about her. After reading The Secret Garden, I realized how clever the author had been in subverting my idea of who was the villain of this story. At first, it had appeared that Mary was the novel's main antagonist due to her rude nature, but as the story progressed, it became apparent that, given the chance, Mary Lennox could be a kinder person, and it was her upbringing that was to blame. As a writer, this novel is close to my heart because it challenged my notion of which characters deserve empathy. I was able to step into Mary's shoes and understand where her turbulent nature stemmed from and see that she deserved my empathy as a reader. Now, back to the interview. Speaking of loss and what we can relate to, you wrote a book that was really meaningful for a lot of readers and for yourself too. I can only imagine losing Tim. Yes, well, what can I say? (laughs) My eldest son, who was always, rather to my horror, in love with the army, I never knew where it came from, thought in terms of honor and glory and defending the country. And it was always very hard for me to understand, but we managed to love each other very much even though our worldviews were very different. But one way of putting what happened to him is that he came around to my point of view. He went to Iraq as a D-miner, removing mines. 
And he came back horrifically disappointed and angry at the contractors and the army itself and the way the war was being run and the lies that had been told. And two months after he went back from Iraq to his family who were living in Namibia, his wife is Namibian, was Namibian, she still is. Two months after he came back, he took his own life. And I found as soon as a week later, that there was no way I could stand it except by writing, 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 writing. And I wrote everything I was going through every day, a lot of the day. And after a while, I realized that I was talking about my grief, but I wasn't talking about his life. So I started adding everything that I remembered about his life and writing and writing and writing. So then I had, you know, hundreds of pages of journal, and I thought there was a book in it that might be helpful to other people who had gone through this extraordinary grief. So I did. <laughs> and then it had trouble finding a publisher because they said it's too sad. People don't want to be this. I don't think the book was sad. By the time I got to the point that it was ended, I felt, and I feel it's in the book, that the memories become happy. And what happens is you never get over it, but you do get to the place that you can celebrate the life in your mind. I wonder what that's like, because you would be traveling around giving readings. You must have had people writing to you, coming up afterwards, sharing their memories. And one woman in a very early reading stood up and said, how does it feel standing up and talking about your son this way? And I stopped and thought about it. And I said, it makes me feel that part of him is still alive, which is the way I felt about the writing. It begins with a quotation from Hilary Mantel about how all you can do is write them back into life. And so when I do a reading from that book, I feel I'm talking him back into life. And insofar as the people I read to hear about him, that he's spread in the world, spread around. I'm very sorry for your loss. And thank you so much for talking about losing Tim. There's an interview you did with Think Peace Publishing where you discussed this mm -hmm. memoir. And you mentioned how after the loss of your son, you needed to write in order to process what you were going through. Yes. And you've talked about that a bit so far. I was wondering if you could discuss your writing process for how you went about structuring and just going about in general writing this memoir. Right. I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to remember in a, <laughs> in a coherent way because I had written so much and I knew that I had to choose from it and I didn't have an outline when I began. But it starts with what many people have said is a very shocking phrase, every suicide is a suicide bomber. And people have asked me why I began that way and I don't exactly know except I wanted to put it right out there, you know, this is what I'm talking about. I'm not hiding the fact that my son took his own life. I think there has been a lot of guilt around the notion of suicide, and I don't think it's appropriate guilt. At any rate, I knew I needed to begin there and begin with the phone call that came about his death. But since I wanted to write about his life as well as his death, I then needed to go back. And so it begins with his death and then it goes to his birth. And that, I guess, gave me a sense of the pattern of what this is like after his death and what it was like during his life back and forth throughout. I'm not sure it's the best pattern, but it's where I ended. I think I had to live the 10 or 12 years after his death before I knew how to end the book. I wrote the ending over and over and over again, and it was always too sad. <laughs> it didn't bring it to closure. But finally, I came to the place that I was joyful in his memory, and I could write about that. And it's so important. So you bring the joy. You can bring people back to life. A book, you know, you can have conversations with history, you have conversations with the past, as you say, and with our loved ones that we lost. So you've probably touched so many people's lives without knowing exactly how in that healing process. But also the courage of saying that every suicide is a suicide bomber, because particularly within the 
mythology of war as well there is this notion of the good war or the just war and it seems very complicated because I don't believe I mean there are wars that you know maybe that you can say that certain people are on the wrong side of it but everyone experiences the pain and the loss of that yes Yes, everyone. I cannot see that there's anything positive about war. (laughs) It's very difficult. I know that the Second World War is seen as necessary and good, and I understand that. But why do we have to go to war? And I, I think there's a biological answer to that, which is that we are programmed by a biological imperative to want to grow. And that means territorialism. And territorialism is at base what wars are about. But in the meantime, we are ruining our planet. And those wars are going to be pointless if we don't quickly and with great force address what we've done. We're going to run out of water very soon. You know, it's scary. And so many other resources and this addiction to fossil fuels. We have a a parallel podcast that we also share on the creative process. It's called One Planet. And we've interviewed Greenpeace and PETA and all these organizations and legislators. And so it's really at the forefront of our mind and what's important. And I'm not personally a fan of the military industrial complex. A bloated military budget is, I just can't condone it. I just feel like, why couldn't we be using that and transitioning to solar and wind? With half that money in America, we could be doing everything we need to be doing. You know, climate, education, health, it's hard to bear. Because I have to say, I'm not terribly optimistic about the future of the human race. I think we may have gone too far in ruining the planet. Well, I meet every day very many hopeful and hardworking students and people their whole life devoted to these things. I guess maybe I'm not optimistic about the selfishness of human nature, but just as a sidebar, I do get hopeful and we have those voices on the podcast when I have conversations with legislators who have, you know, implemented legislation in over 100 countries and tell me it's possible to get to 100% renewable energy in 10 years. This particular person who's a German legislator who lives 100% renewable life, so he can do it. But it's about getting other people to stop, to actually work in their own self-interest. This is a whole other issue, but it is important that we both exercise our arts, but also exercise our ability to tell stories, to share our dreams, but also to wake people up out of the dream to the reality of the situation. So I'm glad that you're outspoken about that and it can only help. And as you look back at your fiction, as well as your theater, you're more of a novelist who sometimes writes plays, and you also write children's books. Yes, at this point, I must say that the novels have been most consistent through my life. I started out as a playwright, and I actually love the theater so much that I daydream that I had stayed in England and stayed in the theater rather than coming back to America, where I really didn't have a theatrical outlet. And so I wrote novels. I I was also at a point that I felt I needed to get inside my characters' minds to write about them rather than having them externalize in play. So that was a reflection of my own need for the internal. But yes, sad to say, I am a novelist who sometimes writes plays. Well, you know, you mentioned Hilary Mantel. And that's sad to say. I mean, she said to me, because I interviewed her, and I also know you know Robert Olin Butler. So these are two writers who have uh, very strong lyrical theatrical elements to their novels. And also Robert, you know, came up through theater in Chicago at Northwestern. And Hilary Mantel said to me, of course, her books have been adapted for stage and screen, but that her books are really just extended plays I mean you can see them because the characters are speaking all the time That's true. yeah it's in their head but it's very much rooted in their voices they're just plays but they'll take you like you know a month to read I really love the orality in fiction and I think there's a lot of like closet playwrights who are novelists it's just the whole business of putting on a play or bringing it to places like Broadway it's so expensive that the novel it's just work it's just between you and the author and you need the publisher in the middle but a book does not cost as much to put on as a play someone can love a book for years whereas a play 
you know, may only last so long. But what did you enjoy about the process of bringing your work to stage? And how involved in that process were you? Very, very involved. I demand to be there. And I have to say that rehearsal is my favorite thing in life. I absolutely love to be in rehearsal. It's partly just hearing your own words beautifully spoken. (laughs) That's a great experience. But it's also the communality of the theater is a great pleasure to me. It's a place that what I do fits into what everybody else does. And they are bringing to life what I've written. And that's just a terribly exciting communal process. I love theater people. They're very generous in my estimation. And I think the whole, you know, in England, they speak of the Levy culture, all the Levies who always are loving them. It's very difficult to put a successful play together. It involves so many different elements, you know, it's very difficult. And I think theater people, as I've experienced them, are very generous to each other for that reason. They know how hard it is. You're very exposed. My family is involved in some elements of, well, now television, film, theater, but I haven't had the pleasure or the pressure and the tension, I don't know, of bringing my own words to stage, but just doing some kind of things of interpreting. You know, it's interesting because I was interviewing John Degada, the essayist, Mm -hmm. and he had one of his books that he co-authored that was brought to stage and Daniel Gradcliffe and Cherry Jones were in it. It's the first time he had that theatrical experience. And he said during that time he was seeing a lot of plays because he was really taking advantage of being immersed. And he said at one time he was watching a play, not his own, that was just a, a humorous play but it was all very well done and he could feel that love, what you're saying, like this whole communal coming together as a family and everyone being involved to make it you know, greater. He felt it at that moment. I have felt that at moments that I remember that there was a production from the National Theatre in England that came to New York in probably 1955, something like that, when I was there for some reason. And it may even have been earlier than that. But at any rate, no, it would be 55 to 58 because I was in college then in New York. This production came of A School for Scandal. And there was a moment when Rafe Richardson turned around to discover that his wife had been hiding in the room of another man. And he said, Lady Teasel, by all that's damnable. And it was so moving. It was so intense a moment that what came into my mind was everything I've done in life since up till now has been worth it to be here at this moment. I just really had that feeling. And I've had that feeling two or three times in the theater, not many. Most of the time, I just enjoy myself. We do in Chicago go to the theater, or did before the pandemic, and will again, at least once a week. It's a fabulous theater scene here, but it is also indicative of what is happening to the arts in a culture in which money really rules. And that is that these brilliant little theaters are peopled with actors who are there for the love of it and can't make a living at acting or directing or designing and so have to have day jobs and devote the rest of their lives for peanuts to to these really extraordinary little independent theaters. Oh, it is a wonderful scene there, I think. Maybe, because some people say that there, I mean, obviously there's that scene in New York, but it may be the expense of it. But Chicago has always held an affection by so many actors. It's really nurtured a lot of talents. And then, of course, they do go on to earn money in the digital form. Yeah, no, I do know that moment because when it comes together in theater, it's not that it's improvised, but it catches you by surprise. This is what that writer, John Degada, was saying to me. For some reason, it's very light play he just in the darkness of the theater he just started crying he felt my life has been so lonely in a room like a beautiful loneliness because he's going into the past he's writing about ancient Greece so it's not a lot of community and he just felt that come into his flood but then the pleasures of being a novelist or being a writer where you have all that time as well There is a separate and close to equal pleasure in being alone and being in control of even if this is a terrible day and I'm 
bitterly unhappy because I hate what I wrote today. And it is unhappiness when I hate what I wrote. Tomorrow I go back to it and say, oh, well, I can salvage this. And here's an idea about that. And then the happiness is bigger than the unhappiness was. And so on the topic of how very sort of individual and experience fiction writing or just even reading fiction can be compared to that communal aspect of a theater or any kind of performance like a play, would you say that plays have a power over fiction, the ability to affect people in ways that you can't necessarily do through fiction, or is it the opposite? It's both. I think they're very different experiences, and certainly you can get completely lost in a novel. A great advantage of a novel is you can carry it on the L, you know, you can take it with you. I taught my children, you can never be bored if you've got a paperback in your pocket. And that, that solitary, I can be inside this world wherever I am, that solitary experience has its own intense pleasure. It's different than the theater where you feel the people around you are part of this experience and the live actors, it's important that they're live. You know, you were talking a while ago about what lasts in the theater, but it's interesting that the idea of auteur for film, I believe grew up because when you write a play, somebody puts it on and then the performance is over and what lasts is the play. And it can be done infinite number of times over again. But with celluloid, what lasts is the celluloid. And so the director really has been the author of the final product. But the final product is a play in legitimate theater. And the final product is the movie in film. The final product is the words in a novel. It's also the package in which they are published, but what lasts is the words in the novel. I think that what's interesting, although I do think we've been talking about it for a, a long time now, that the death of the reader or whatever, but I do think in some extent, we don't have as many literate readers as we might have in the past. Yeah. Readers for pleasure as well, literate readers for pleasure, because there's readers who study literature, readers who enjoy literature too, you know, like it's not always the same thing, but... I think that what's wonderful about a novel is once you have that reader who really has to be an interpreter or somehow a translator into their own imagination of it, just like a composer or a, a musician who makes sound of the notes on the page. So you need that conversation for them to really understand. So that's, I guess, how it gets completed in the mind of the reader. But what's nice is that pretty much as long as you can depend on that level of literacy you know just a few days ago it was a james joyce's bloomsday and that still exists where he wrote that there's nothing been changed you know and we can still experience it with a play that may be written you know hundreds of years ago or a hundred years ago say written at the same time 1921 when ulysses was published that you can't relive it it can't always be performed in the same way. And so there's a lot of pitfalls. That's the problem. You need to have all these talents and they have to all be working in tandem and you have to make sure you don't get them on the bad days. But I do think that with novels, it takes, as opposed to plays or cinema, music, we kind of instinctively know how to receive those works of art. And you don't need too much erudition. And I feel that with a good literary novel, you sometimes need to have grown up really immersed in it to appreciate it. I think that a lot of novels, you mentioned Henry James or, or James Joyce, but a lot of novels that can't be appreciated in the way that they might have been. It takes a long time to kind of produce a good reader, maybe I should say. I think you're right. And I think you don't need to be shy about suggesting that we don't have as many good readers as we had, even in my childhood. And the reason is related to the number of actors who have to have day jobs. It's that money has dominated at least American culture in a way. But here's what I'm hopeful about in that regard. I've realized this for a very long time, teaching, that students came to me who would love to have been rich and famous, but who really wanted to write. And it didn't come out of their backgrounds. They weren't very good readers, but they wanted to write. And the popularity of creative writing in the university in America 
has just been astounding. So I feel as if in a way, the culture is bottom up in the same way that hip hop has taken over music for young black people. In fiction writing, it's often science fiction or fantasy that they want to write, but they come desperate to university and conference and individual teachers, all kinds of places that they can be helped to learn to write when they really have no or very little expectation of being successful writers who can live on what they've written. So that desire of the young to write seems to me uh, a very hopeful sign. Yeah, I mean, certain forms of storytelling are flourishing more than others. It's interesting to see there has been, I think, with the internet and the different social media that you can actually see that even poetry wasn't as popular and it's become more popular and people are finding the immediacy. So whereas the long epic novel might not be something that people gravitated towards and felt they had to write, but you do see a kind of talent for compression and, you know, polyphonic, even internet-inspired. The short story is published much more than it was in my youth. I love writing short stories because it's about finding the time for it. But in the past, I heard like, you know, not just F. Scott Fitzgerald, but like a whole generation of writers made more money from their short stories than their novels. Yes. (laughs) When the Saturday Evening Post and Ladies Home Journals were publishing short stories, then that was a time you could make a living at that. Then that fell away. Those publications stopped. They stopped buying so much fiction and they also stopped being produced. But at this point, there are hundreds and hundreds of little magazines. So it's possible to learn how to write a story because you are able to go to those magazines and also to send to them. And they become the entry way for young writers who can then find a publisher that will publish a book of short stories. That was 20, 30 years ago. It was very difficult to get a publisher to publish a book of short stories. Now it's relatively easy. It's just finding financial ways to make it viable. And of course, you have throughout your career, you've also taught. And so that is a nice way and others gravitate towards, I guess, film or television and they find other routes. As you say, you know, we need to live as well as to make our art, you know, the arts that make life worth living, I should say. I guess in closing, because we can summarize all your books, we'll just have to direct readers to discover them. I I want to speak a little bit more about the different places you lived have inspired your imagination. Enormously. The the first thing I want to know when I sit down to write a novel is where is this? It's somehow because I was born in Arizona and never really felt that Arizona was my home. I have spent my life looking for a home and I've looked for it in England and Florida and Chicago and New Haven and Paris (laughs) and have never really found a home, which means that the place I am is very important to me. And even the room I'm in is very important to me. So everything happens somewhere. Everything happens sometime somewhere. So that's something that I want to know about my fiction as I begin. And it's so interesting because I think that it also speaks to something about that may make people writers or particularly novelists is perhaps a longing for an authentic imagined life where I certainly because I'm of a generation where I didn't have internet first thing and so I had books first but it kind of sets you up to have a longing for this feeling of true communication and connection because it's really intimate to have one person's thoughts and dreams transmitted to you. So I think that when you say that you never felt at home, I certainly sort of had this experience, although I do feel at home in Paris. Paris is a good choice. (laughs) Yeah, it's not a bad choice. But, you know, of course, what, what you experience in fiction and in novels is it's something sort of like when you close your eyes and dream. It's so close to your intense feelings, the intense private worlds. And so sometimes... And this is what I found. Uh, So it's not a question to you, but I think that maybe other novelists are a little romantic. 
and novels might encourage a kind of romanticism about the world because whatever drama or whatever turmoil or conflict is presented in them, it's always done with beauty and harmony. This is one question I didn't ask you about. It's about the difference between writing scripts and novels is, you know, a book is full of beauty and harmony and in a good play, it's not always great to look at on the page. I don't know what your process is like. Do you put in all the beauty and harmony, then you start to take stuff out because otherwise it's just not going to live? I learned a long time ago that when I'm writing a novel, I am writing from here onto the page, always out of me onto the page. But when I'm writing a play, it's up here and I take it down onto the page. So I'm seeing it as if it were in production. And I know that the dialogue and the action must reveal what the characters are not willing to reveal, that I'm not in their minds. So somehow or other, that has to be externalized. And that need for externalization obviously took this silly little form in me of being up there on the stage. And it's a great gift to be able to visualize it before it's being interpreted by actors. But of course, your novel writing skill, well, you began as a playwright too. So I think that they can only help inform and inspire the other and make you... I think all of the forms inspire and help others. It's important. Poetry will teach you the rhythmic nature of prose and drama will teach you the nature of conflict and if I could paint, I would be very happy because the visual aspect of fiction is enormously important. That's true. Many people don't speak about that. And so as you look back on this life and writing and you think towards the future, and I know you, are you still teaching? No, no, I retired a long time ago. I will be 80, 85 in September. I wasn't sure because I had thought, how can that be? Because you've been over 60 years writing anyway. So maybe you're in touch with some of your students. But as you think about the future and the importance of the arts, you know, education, the kind of changes we're going through, you know, what would you like to change? What are your hopes? What do you think young people should know, preserve and remember? Well, those are a lot of questions. First of all, I share the optimism that you've expressed about the very young, the millennials, are the possible salvation. And I think those also are the people who are wanting to write because the writing feels good and not because they want to get rich and famous at it. And the work itself is important to them. And I think that's very encouraging. What should students know? Now her name is going to go out of my head. I'm sorry, I can't come up with it a famous woman writer <laughs> was asked what is the most important thing for a young writer to know and she said keep a low overhead <laughs> that's still true for everyone yeah yeah keep a low because it takes years to mature and to get better at things you do over a long period of time so you have to allow yourself not to force it and to allow you time. i'm just very aware of this uh, at the moment because my novels are all being brought back into print in the uk michael walmer publishers and so we're starting with the first one i think oh do I really want to publish that again? It's so clumsy compared to what I'm doing now. And I see that I did get better as I went along. And would you do a revised version or something? Could you do that or would, would it work? Certainly my first novel, I have made a few emendations, such as that there is an important character is a, a young Mexican boy. And I had what I now consider an absolute sin. I had misspelled his dialogue to indicate his accent. So I've taken that out. You know, don't do that anymore. I've advised my students for years, never misspell an accent, you know. But that was a mechanical change. And if I started working on it to make it into a good novel, I'd never be done with it. That's also historical in a way, you know, so 
It's interesting when you can look back at your own works and they were contemporary, but now they're historical. And so it's what we can learn from them. It must be, you know, exciting and kind of scary. But I just want to thank you, Janet Burroway, for inviting us into your imaginative world and helping us navigate our way through life's wonders and sorrows with grace, courage, and honesty. Of course, your wonderful textbook, which has now become the most taught in universities in America which has helped countless young writers find their voice. Thank you for sharing your insights into writing and life. Thank you very much. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer and co-anchor on this podcast was Jackie Lamb. Digital Media Coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas and Adolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.